Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. It is V-Day plus one today in British Columbia. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in British Columbia continues today. And what a hopeful and exciting day it was yesterday as the COVID-19 vaccine arrived in British Columbia. And the cheers and the applause you heard just there, that was the sound yesterday as the first frontline healthcare worker received the first vaccine in British Columbia. The first shot went into the arm of Nisha Yanus, 64 years old. She's a residential care aide in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. She was the first one to get the shot. Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, was on hand for this historic moment. Here's what she had to say. It's so exciting to know that uh, we are starting to make a difference in turning the tide of this pandemic, and it's monumental. Okay, I spoke to a buddy of mine last night who works in the long-term care sector. I asked him what the mood was like yesterday. He said three words, tears of joy. A lot of people hopeful that this is the beginning of the end, some light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, let's talk about this now. i got two great guests for you, a couple of long-term care aides who work in, in our system. And I'm very pleased to welcome them both to the show. Sherito de Guzman Flores is a long-term care aide in North Vancouver, and she received the vaccine yesterday. Sherito, hello. Hi, good morning. Thank you for being here today. Also on the line is Bonnie Hammersteiner. She's a long-term care aide uh, in the system as well, and she is set to receive the vaccine very soon. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Thank you to both of you. And let me just say that you are you guys are the heroes here of this struggle in the fight against this virus. And I saw the Canadian press has just named frontline healthcare workers as the major newsmakers of the year in this country. And I think well-deserved. So I, I appreciate everything both of you are doing. Sherito, let me go to you first. What was it like to receive the COVID-19 vaccine yesterday? I was so excited to have it. <laughs> knowing that it will be the beginning of the end of the pandemic and to yeah. s- protect my the residents I look after and my co-workers and my family. That's wonderful to hear. What was it like? Did it, uh, is it just like, a, like a, any kind of regular flu shot? Yeah, I felt like it's just a regular flu shot. It's uh, sore on the injection site, but yeah. other than that, it feels like the regular flu shot that I take every year. Right. Did it? Did you have any after effects or anything? It, it feels a little bit different. Like, uh, I think the, my body was adjusting to the <coughs> antibodies injected to my system. Yeah. Okay, and then you've got to get another shot in a few weeks, right? Follow-up shot. Yeah, uh, we were told that uh, they would contact us within 21 to 28 days for the right. second shot. 
Right. Sharito, you work in long-term care. You work with uh, vulnerable seniors, and thank you for doing that. Um, what did it? What's it like to receive this this vaccine? Knowing, like as you said, this is going to be so helpful for you, the people you work with, your family. What kind of emotions are you feeling? I have mixed emotions. Uh, like uh, I'm, but I'm very hopeful that it will be the beginning of the end of the pandemic. That it will <clears throat> safeguard us all from the COVID nineteen. Right. Do you feel like, do you feel safer? I feel safer and feel protected that uh, I won't be getting the virus and I won't be giving it to the vulnerable residents of the long-term care facility I work for. That's awesome, Sharito. I love it. Let's speak to Bonnie. Bonnie, you're set to receive Hi. the vaccine. When will, will you get the vaccine today, or do you know when you'll receive I, it? We're not sure. We haven't been let know um, when we're going to get it, um, but I am very excited. Um, I have grandchildren that I haven't seen for months. Um, I have my coworkers here at work. We're getting exhausted. Um, I mean, from between doing overtime and all that kinds of stuff as well. Um, my residents, my uh, to see them, we do have a few in our facility right now with COVID. Um, and, I mean, with our PPE and every, we're very thankful we have it all to protect our residents and us. And um, when we get, when I get the vaccine, um, I'll be so much happier. I'll feel, I'll feel safer. I still will do the precautions, the six feet and everything, to, you know what I mean? Just to make sure that, right. you know, everything's going to go through and, and, and do it properly. I mean, it just takes one to mess up, and we don't. And that's one thing I don't want to do. Um, I have encouraged my family and my coworkers here uh, at my work to get it. Um, that you know, we are in healthcare, and I mean, I get the flu shot every year, and I mean that has helped us to keep our residents safe as well. So um, we've, you know, we've had uh, two deaths here due to COVID, but. You know, and I, my heart goes out to the families, you know, uh, very much so. And I just hope and pray that I want to see the pandemic over. Um, oh, yeah. And I hope to God and I pray that everybody looks to getting the vaccine. Um, we need something to stop this. And as us as healthcare workers to stand forward and be the first ones, you know what? We're, we're the warriors and we're going to stand up and we're going to do our jobs. I love it. Do you have any? Do you have any sense of uh, any of your coworkers or any of them nervous or hesitant to take the vaccine? There is. Um, I mean, there is. You know, we there is a few that are hesitant because they're saying, "Well, what about the after effects? Or what about this? Mm-hmm. Or what about that?" And along with anything else in this world, I mean, there's something that comes with something in, in it at all. I mean, you take Advil. There's effects from that. You take Tylenol. It takes effects for that. Um, yes, we have to look at our own health, and I mean, I know no one wants to see, you know, wants to be, um, you know, on death's door or anything like that. But I mean, if, if, if this gives us a chance to fight this and protect ourselves, our family and our residents, um, our coworkers, our doctors, our other nurses, everybody, you know what, we should be going for it and getting it. Right. How, what's the mood like in the facility where you work with the vaccine finally arriving here? I mean, are, your, are your coworkers excited? How about the residents that you care for? What are they saying oh, about the vaccine? I've already got residents saying, when are we getting our shot? <laughs> yeah, I bet. 
<laughs> I have one lady actually asked me this morning, when am I getting it? And she's pointing to her arm, right? <laughs> um, and I says, you know what? I'm not sure. I said, I know us as healthcare, us as care we're going to get it first. Um, but then they're going to look into be giving it to you. So, and I mean, there's fam- I mean, there's husbands and wives here that haven't seen their their loved ones for months no. um, as well. But the coworkers here, there's a lot of excited ones, uh, you know, very excited ones. And then, like you, like you said, there's a lot of ones that are hesitant because they're they're uh, they're sure. Um, how could they say? Uh, not sure of the unknown. Right. Sure. Right. So. But, well, thank um, you. I want to thank you, Bonnie, and also you, Sharito, for the work you do on the front line in long-term care. Thank you. And Sharito, congratulations on getting the vaccine. Bonnie, I hope you get yours today or very soon. And thank you both Amen. for being on the show. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much, me. Mike. You have an awesome yeah, day. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much. That is Sherito de Guzman Flores. She is a long-term care aide in North Vancouver. She received the COVID vaccine yesterday. Bonnie Hammersteiner is a long-term care aide in Surrey, and she is set to receive the vaccine very soon, perhaps even today. And they are the heroes in this fight against this pandemic. Great to talk to a couple of frontline healthcare workers set to receive the COVID-19 shot. You heard from one long-term care aide who received the COVID-19 vaccine yesterday and another care worker set to receive the shot very soon, uh, perhaps as early as today. These are the heroes in the fight against this virus, especially in long-term care, which we've had the vast majority of the deaths from this virus. So these are people just putting themselves on the line to take care of elderly seniors. And I think it is right that they get the shot first. And it's continuing today with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's check in with Mike Old now. He's a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union, represents a lot of those workers there. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. What is the mood like here for frontline healthcare workers in the in the long-term care system as, as they get this vaccine here today? Well, I mean, I think you could hear it in Bonnie and Chirito's voices. I mean, mm-hmm. long-term care workers are very excited that they're going to have another kind of tool in their toolbox to try and keep their residents safe and, of course, keep their uh, fellow workers and their families safe. It's been a real slog, Mike. These workers have been, you know, they were um, limited to single sites in uh, March and April, an important policy that we supported. But it's really meant that people have been working a lot of overtime when there's an outbreak. There's uh, not a lot of people to back up people who are isolating or off sick. So it's been very, very difficult work. And of course, whenever there's an outbreak and many residents, you know, have died in this pandemic, that's incredibly hard on the families of residents, but it's also really, really taxing on the emotional health of care aides and others who work in our long-term care system. Yeah, you mentioned that single site policy that the government brought in because prior to that, you had a lot of workers who would, they would move around from different care homes in, in in the region and potentially spreading the virus. So I think it was it was very wise for the government to put a stop to that right at the start of this and say, look, if you're working in a long-term care home, you got to stay in that one home. But th- that challenge that you just described, so that means that it's tougher to backfill if, if you need, like if people are off or people are it's working overtime. More, yeah, it's a bit more difficult because, um, you know, people are no longer on casual lists at, you know, several sites. The 
the, the situation before was that one out of about one out of five uh, care workers in seniors care worked two or more jobs in the healthcare system. So mm-hmm. now the casual lists are starting to dry up a bit. It's harder to backfill folks uh, when they're off sick or they're being isolated because of an outbreak. So that's made everything just a bit more difficult. And we have many, many long-term care workers who've worked, uh, you know, two weeks, three weeks without a day off. And that's pretty tough. Okay. Long-term care workers right at the front of the line to receive this vaccine. We saw the first vaccines given out yesterday, more today. Are you guys satisfied with the way this is rolled out here now? And how is it, how is it going, in your opinion, the rollout of the vaccine? It seems to be going pretty well. I'm sure there's a few kinks they're ironing out. It's a pretty complex operation to put in place. There's, uh, you know, there's probably upwards of 45,000 workers in seniors care alone. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the numbers are in healthcare, but, you know, by the end of March, the government's intention is to have vaccinated, you know, healthcare workers, uh, lots of uh, first responders, and of course, all the very vulnerable populations are most at risk from COVID-19, including long-term care residents. Can you describe the kind of the emotions or the mood or the feelings that people are experiencing here? I mean, we all knew this vaccine was coming. We knew these long-term care workers would be the first to receive it. But to actually see people getting the shot, I mean, like you said, you could hear some of the emotion in the voices there of the two workers we just we just spoke to. Can you describe what it's like here among among people who are working in these long-term care facilities? Well, I, you know, I, I think they're, they're just very grateful that there is something here that spells the end of the pandemic eventually. You know, and I think you heard from the care workers that they're going to continue to follow uh, public health guidance. And I think their message to the public would be, this is not the time to take your foot off the gas. We really need to do everything we can to sort of prevent the devastation that COVID can have in a long-term care home. Because when there's community infection, it will get into a long-term care home. That's why we're uh, vaccinating uh, long-term care workers first to try and prevent that. But everybody's got to keep on their toes through the holiday season, and uh, we can't take our foot off the gas. But, you know, when we heard last week that the uh, vaccine had been, the first vaccine had been approved, I mean, there were you know, people were pretty teary about it. I mean, they can tell that this is uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, as you said at the top of the yeah. show. Yeah, for sure. Mike Old is my guest. He's a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union. Let's talk about that top-up pay that the B.C. government promised, uh, an increase in pay for frontline health care workers. What is going on with this? Because some, some of them have not received the promised uh, top-up pay, correct? Yeah, so just to recap, the pandemic pay was a program that was co-funded by the province and the federal government. It basically provides uh, $4 an hour for all straight-time hours worked by uh, workers in healthcare and lots of different kinds of community services and corrections and some other selected services for a 16-week period that ended on July 4th. Now, most of uh, our members who work in directly for health authorities so people who work in hospitals and extended care facilities, they received the payment in early October. But for, you know, tens of thousands of other workers, they still have not received the payment. And some of the workers who have not received payment are some of the lowest paid in the healthcare system. And that is really, really frustrating. And, uh, of course, we're not even sure they're going to get their, their payment by the holidays. So that's also frustrating. Okay, the government actually issued an apology for some of the workers who have not received uh, this pay. When are they going to get it? 
Well, I mean, we don't know. That's the short answer. But uh, government has said that they believe uh, all or virtually all of the pandemic payments to workers who are eligible for those payments should be wrapped up by the end of January. But of course, you know, many workers were depending on that uh, that pay before Christmas, and uh, some of them will get it, some of them won't. Okay, Mike, thank you for coming on today, and thanks to all the frontline healthcare workers, especially in long-term care here, and I hope we all, they all get their COVID shots very soon. I really appreciate you reaching out to us, Mike. Have a good morning. Yeah, thanks a lot. That is Mike Old. He's a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union there. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in British Columbia continues today let's talk about the uproar now over the vancouver canucks logo wow did this thing ever blow up yesterday it all started when a university of manitoba indigenous studies professor sean carlton uh, called on the canucks to retire the orca he was referring to the well-known canucks killer whale logo very prominent on the canucks jersey been around for 14 years or so It shows, of course, that orca breaking through the ice. The problem, according to this uh, university academic, is the whale is clearly drawn using the style and iconography of Coast Salish art, which is sacred to indigenous people. He called it cultural appropriation, and he called on the Canucks to drop the logo what a debate this started. Have a listen to this. This is Elliot Whitehill. He is a Coast Salish artist speaking yesterday to Linda Steele on the importance of art in culture. For Indigenous peoples, at least from the cultures that I'm from as a Coast Salish and New Channel person, you know, our art is not just art. It's really intrinsically tied into our identity and it's intrinsically tied to its use within ceremony and ritual. And uh, so when, you know, it's, it's not quite as simple as somebody drew something this way and we really like the way they drew it. So I'm also going to draw it that way. It really goes into a lot more sacred parts about who we are. Okay, what a debate this has started now. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Ellis Ross. He is the former chief of the Heisla First Nation. Of course, he's a liberal MLA for Skeena. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ellis, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. I'm really, really interested to get your take on this as a former Heisla chief, and certainly Heisla art, absolutely beautiful. And when I look at the the art of the Heisla First Nation, it, it does sort of look similar to the Canucks logo. But you give me your thoughts, uh, Ellis, and what you think about this controversy over the Canucks logo. Uh, I don't think much about it, really. In fact, when I when I saw the controversy pop up last year, I didn't think much of it either. Uh, and by the way, I used to be an artist as well. I, I used to make uh, money when there was no jobs back in the, the 80s. That's yeah. how I used to make money was off Native art. And I come from a family of artists, including my father. Wow. Uh, what, what really ticks me off about this is that this is a distraction from the real problems facing First Nations all across Canada. Mm. And instead of tackling those issues of poverty, children in care, imprisonment, uh, the dreams of independence, uh, we find a way to distract by going after uh, the Canucks logo from a person in Manitoba, of all places. Yeah. Do you think most, I mean, in your conversations with, with Indigenous people, like you and I had a little uh, exchange of uh, text messages yesterday, and you mentioned a lot of Indigenous people are hockey fans, right? So, I mean, do they like, do most Indigenous people you know, do they like the Canucks logo? You know, it's never come up. 
Yeah. And in fact, indigenous <laughs> people love hockey. They play yeah. hockey. Uh, my wife is, is a bandwagon Canucks fan. When they're doing good, she jumps on the bandwagon, buys the shirts and the, the merchandise. But when they're doing badly, she doesn't. So she's a bandwagon. And you know, there was one comment made by an Aboriginal couple of days ago that, that I never even thought of because I, I play sports, but I don't watch sports. But what he said was, uh, most sports symbols try to symbolize strength and resilience. So he was kind of mm. proud that, that there was some element of native designs in the Canucks logo. And I, I never thought of that before. And I did, it was something that, uh, you know, it, it's, we, we want to show the world that uh, we're still here. And we want to be part of the, the society. We want to be part of the economy. Uh, but for that, we've got to share some of our culture. And we've got to be open to new ideas. Okay, so you don't think it's cultural appropriation then? No, in, in fact, you, you know what, I, I think it's complimented the Canucks, the Aboriginal people, to include them. But also, mm. it's kind of a confusing logo as well, because uh, I thought the Canucks term itself was a derogatory term from the United States people calling us, as Canadians, Canucks. And I never knew what that meant. Mm. So I, if anything, I, I don't think the logo actually fits the name. Right. I mean, a Canuck, is, as far as I know, is a Dutch Canadian, right? As far as I know, but and I don't make that connection. But you know, what? I never thought much about the logo because the logo actually incorporated a number of different elements, not just native designs. It included some kind of a wave and you know, new age type uh, logo type artwork. So yeah. I, I think, like even the legislature here, I really try to take people off the distraction of uh, what's facing indigenous people nowadays and try to get people to think more about the real issues facing aboriginals and try to solve them right speaking to ellis ross he's the former chief of the heisla first nation um the fact that this logo the canucks orca logo was designed by a non-indigenous artist is that an issue in your mind now the canucks are saying back when this logo was designed like 14 years ago or so that they did reach out to first nations leaders asked for their input on the design and there didn't seem to be any major objections to it but it was designed by a non-indigenous artist is that a, a problem in your mind i mean would it be better if, it, if an indigenous artist had designed the logo or does it matter uh you, you know what it probably would have mattered in a different context, but when I looked at the logo when it first came out, I couldn't decide whether or not it was a native design. Mm. It, 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 it kind of looked like one, but it didn't have some of the basic fundamentals of what native designs are all about. I didn't see any of it. And uh, you know what? When you're talking about native designs, you're not talking about a generic art form. Uh, back, back 20, 30 years ago, you could have told the difference between... Uh, a Haida native design, Haida, uh, Coast Salish, you could have told the difference. Uh, nowadays, it's starting to become more more generic. It's all starting to look the same. So when I looked at the Canucks logo, the first thing I thought about, okay, what style is that in? Because I can't figure it out. And I thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was a bit of a hybrid. I couldn't tell whether or not definitively it yeah. was a native design. Yeah, no, I think other Indigenous leaders are saying similar in the last 24 hours since this controversy erupted that it doesn't, it, it looks kind of like, a, almost like a cartoonish kind of style that you typically would see on a sports logo. So it didn't seem to be kind of trying to um, match a, like a sacred uh, Aboriginal iconography or anything like that. Even Chief Grand Chief Stuart Phillip 
uh, of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, um, who, who is usually pretty hard line in this kind of stuff, he thought he thought there was no problem uh, with this Canucks logo. So uh, a lot of the, a lot of Indigenous leaders that I can see so far. Uh, Ellis are, are, seem to agree with you that this is not a big problem. But let me play this here for you. This is um, Elliot Whitehill, once again, a Coast Salish artist speaking to Linda Steele yesterday, and he says there could be actually a big opportunity here for the Vancouver Canucks. Have a listen. There's such an amazing opportunity here to reach out with artists from the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations and, uh, and you know, j- even just talk to them about what their ideas are, what their concerns might be. But I think that for me as a Coast Salish person, it would just be so special to see Coast Salish art represented within the Canucks logo and the organization. And that it, like just how powerful that would be for future generations of Coast Salish people. Okay, Ellis Ross, what do you think? Do you think the Canucks could do a better job reaching out to Indigenous communities? Well, they tried that when they first came with the logo. And uh, some of the, the Aboriginal people I talked to uh, don't even don't even think about that in terms of the politics of, of a logo. I mean, I, I don't want to take my eye off the ball of trying to address uh, natives in poverty, children in care, right. natives in imprisonment. This is a distraction. Right. Uh, but you know what? Vancouver Canucks actually belong to BC. They don't, they don't belong to Vancouver. I mean, there's a lot of the people I've talked to, especially natives, you know, they, they talk about how ugly some of the other logos were, especially the orange and black one. And I've actually <laughs> got messages and saying they should just go back to hockey stick. That was the best one out of all of them. Yeah. And so, but, but nobody's ever talked to me about cultural appropriation. No one's ever said that. I think hockey and sports is a different topic altogether. And the issues facing First Nations, uh, in my mind, go way beyond a logo. Let me let me just finish up, Alice, by by seizing on that point with you. And and you've made it a few times here in our, in our chat that this is a distraction. There are bigger issues here facing First Nations and Indigenous communities in, in British Columbia. Like, what is at the top of your list as an Indigenous leader in British Columbia? And certainly not the Vancouver Canucks logo. What would be the top of your list right now? In terms of Aboriginal issues, yeah, uh, it, it's it's uh, it's been proven in a number of different communities, that uh, there is a way away from the Indian Act. And that's to be included in the economy, included in greater society, and uh, basically chart their own path. Uh, we, we've stalled now in the last couple of years, but if it's proven, and it doesn't have to cost uh, the taxpayers anything else out, out of uh, what's, what's co- going towards First Nations already, then why did we stop this? I mean, it's you come up to Kitimat Terrace and you go to places like West Bank and you see their path to independence and you see them using that independence to address their own issues in terms of social issues. Yeah. I mean, we, we're on the cusp of a solution here for natives in, in BC. And that, that is always at the top of my list in terms of uh, where BC and Canada take First Nations issues. Ellis Ross, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. All right, I appreciate it a lot. That is Ellis Ross. He is the former chief of the Heisla First Nation. They're weighing in on the controversy over the Vancouver Canucks logo. Let's talk about one of the hardest hit sectors during this pandemic now, and that is restaurants. Lots of restaurants struggling to hang on during the pandemic. But I'll tell you what, one business that seems to be doing pretty darn well during the pandemic, that's those home delivery apps. So I'm talking DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats. Lots of people getting takeout. They're getting home delivery. Uh, these door, these uh, home delivery apps must be cleaning up. And no wonder when you take a look at their fees. 
Oh, my goodness. I've used DoorDash. I've used Uber Eats. I've used Skip the Dishes, too. Man, oh, man, it can be expensive. They charge like a 30% fee there on home deliveries. Super convenient. These apps work well. But, man, that can be an expensive proposition, and it also hurts the bottom line of restaurants. Now, remember the recent provincial election. Both major parties promised to cut the delivery fees for these home food delivery apps still waiting here for the john horgan government to make good on that okay let's talk about this issue now with my guest brad mcleod he is the president of sea lovers fish and chips best fish and chips in town hiya brad hi mike glad to be here thanks a lot for coming yeah. on yeah these these third-party apps that are out there that uh for the delivery system is very detrimental to the restaurant industry. We're all in a terrible spot with COVID, and they've ex- they've accelerated huge with the need for people for delivery. But yeah. the commissions they charge, um, restaurants can't sustain it. There's the profit margins are just way too low to be paying 25, 30 percent commissions. Um, restaurants don't make money. It's just they're borrowing for the future, and they're not going to make it if we yeah. carry on the way we're going. No, the margins are, are are tight enough as it is to run a restaurant at the best of times rather than having a 30% commission carved out of the out of the picture. Is that what it call it? Can you break down some of these fees that these apps charge? How does it work? Yeah, it starts off, most people don't realize, like, they'll say, oh, free delivery charge or whatever, but they'll have a on it, you'll notice there, it'll say taxes and fees. Well, the tax is a dollar, but the fee is about four fifty. So they're getting you there. The restaurants, they take right off the bottom line, they, they'll take thir- up to 30% off the item. So if it's a $10 menu item, you get $7 as a restaurant. Uh, wow. The tip as well, the tip as well goes directly to the driver. Nothing is forwarded through to the restaurant. So the staff that are cooking that food, preparing that food and getting the order ready, don't see any of that tip whatsoever. Okay. It, Do, it's does- just unmanageable. Yeah. Does Sea Lovers use any of these home delivery apps? No, we have we have pushed back against it since Square One when they came out. When they uh, came to us, I get it daily. I just had two emails this morning from two of the big companies. One is to join up, but when you sit down and put the numbers together, it it doesn't pay. Uh, you can't afford to sell products at below cost. You just will not stay in business. And also, they also take control of all of our customer data. We don't know who's buying from us. We've spent 35 years building up a business that we, we with our dine-in and take-out customers, have constant contact with them in person, on the phone, through our, our Sea Lovers Club. And with these third-party apps, they take control of all that data. We don't know who's buying from us or what's going on. They become their customer, not our customer anymore. And you just can't carry on that way. Okay, that's an interesting angle on it too. Maybe people won't, might not have thought about that when you use these apps. So you got to share your personal information. So you have some concerns there. We do, but also we don't see who's purchasing from us. We just get okay. it. If you take an order from them, you see a number. You don't know it, who it is. So they they tell you they're bringing new customers, but they want you to logo all over your business that you're now a Skip the Dishes or a DoorDash participant. Well, they they take your existing customers and they now have them. And you just lose your brand identity. And it's just, it's too many restaurants have spent too much time building up their brand to allow a third party to take control of that brand. It just doesn't work. And the restaurant industry, if it carries on this way, you'll see local restaurants, the small guys, 
will just start falling all over the place because they, they can't carry on this way, giving up 30% to somebody else. Yeah. Speaking of, Brad, speaking of Brad McLeod, he's the president of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. Like That's an interesting point, too, about you don't know who the customers are because a lot of restaurants, uh, they like to have reward loyalty, right? Repeat customers. I know you guys got like a Sea Lovers Club or something, right, for repeat customers? Yeah, we have our Sea Lovers Club, and we stay in contact with our customers through that, right. through an email base that only we have. We don't allow access to any other companies to that list. It's directly for us. When you put it into these third parties, you're handing it over to who knows who, what, and where, and how. So we just don't we don't believe it's a way to go, and we stand our ground that we won't be doing it. Okay, a lot of restaurants all around North America feel similar to you, Brad, and a lot of them are complaining about these excessive fees that are charged by these third-party apps. What do you think could be done here to improve this or make it better? Cut the fees? Cut, cut the fees and be more transparent about what's going on out there, um, of how the fees are charged and so on and so forth. They're very, they're very hidden about what the fees are on the restaurant side to the public. Most of the public thinks they're paying for the service. They're not paying for the service. Well, they are in the end because all the costs are going to be tied in. But it needs the rates have to drop. It has to be yeah. sustainable. And it has to be more of a partnership with the restaurant. My customers need to stay my customers. And that's the big, one of the biggest concerns we have is they take all that database. They take your customers, and they, they're their customers, and they do whatever they want to do with that information. And we just can't allow that to happen. Right. You mentioned that Sea Lovers Fish and Chips has taken a stand on this one and you're not using any of these third-party apps. I imagine there may be some other restaurants out there who feel like they almost feel obligated or forced to use DoorDash or Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats because they're just becoming so prevalent on people's smartphones that maybe they feel like if they're not on some of these services, they're going to miss out on sales. Yes, yes, I can see some of them having that concern. The problem is, well, you're focusing on those orders that you don't make money on. You're not taking care of the orders that you can make money on. And you have to watch that when you do get the busier times and you're too much tied up, times tied up with those orders you're making no money on. You're not taking care of that dine-in customer or that walk-in takeout order. And you've got to watch yourself because it can be a, a hidden problem for you there. Yeah, and uh, would, would you say, what would be your message to, to the provincial government here now? I mean, we had both major political parties in the recent provincial election flag this as an issue. They both promised to reduce the fees that these apps collect. We still haven't seen any action on it yet. You want to see the government move on this, right? Oh, definitely. It's like yeah. most election promises. They can talk, 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 but when action comes, nothing seems to be happening after the election. And here we are in the middle of the second wave, and nothing's happening about it. And it's going to be too little, too late, I believe, for a lot of people in the industry. Yeah, how is Sea Lovers hanging in there during this pandemic? I know you have a lot of lo locations across the Lower Mainland there. Are you guys hanging in there? Yeah, we're hanging in. It's uh, definitely been a struggle throughout it, but we've uh, held in. We're lucky because we already had a good base of takeout business, and we're able to uh, flip things over to handle that takeout volume uh, when COVID hit. And uh, we've stayed in touch with our clientele and our customers and provided that service. And we've been able to uh, weather the storm and we'll make it through all the way.
Yeah, I know a lot of other restaurants too. If they're using DoorDash or Skip the Dishes or these other apps, I think some of them have been forced to put up their menu prices just to try and survive these the excessive fees that are charged. So this can get really expensive pretty quickly. Oh yeah, lots of startups up their prices because they've seen they can't make money. So right. They're having to raise their prices right across the board right. in order to compensate for that. The consumer ends up paying the cost in the end or the business goes under. No one can operate a business at a loss for a sustained period. And what's happening is people don't realize that these hidden costs are going to end up being borne on the customer. And a $15 item is going to cost you 30 in the end. Yeah. And it just doesn't make sense. Right. Brad, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Remember okay. to support your local restaurant by phoning direct or going to your customers, uh, your restaurants direct to support them and don't go to third-party apps. It won't support your restaurants. All right, Brad. Thanks a lot. That is Brad McLeod. He is the president of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. They do not use these third-party apps. A lot of other restaurants do. Man, it's expensive. If you've ever used it, you'll notice it can be expensive to use these home delivery apps for sure. A lot of people turning to them for the convenience, especially uh, during the pandemic with so many people eating at home. We continue talking about home delivery apps like DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, and Uber Eats. Do you use these apps? Do you find them expensive? Call me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell. Bill and Kamloops. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, yeah. We're, we've been in the business for 30 years. And like when they first came to us and asked us, you know, they would pay 30%, we're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then they don't encourage the restaurant owners to increase their prices. They say that they're bringing all these new customers to you and everything like that, which is absolute BS. And then, you know, every time you, you have a transaction as, as a thing, they can, uh, you know, if the customer complains, you have no, no way of arguing with them. So as a restaurant owner, you could have a big order. And if they say, oh, you missed something, then they'll, they'll comp the customer, the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's outrageous that the restaurant owners are being held, you know, held down on this. And like in some cases, it's the only thing that's keeping them alive and they're actually losing money. So they're not living. Okay. Do you use the apps yourself at your restaurant? Yes, I do, but I inch- yeah. I charge twenty six percent on top of our menu items. Yeah, because that's what they're charging me. And you know what? We haven't had anybody complain. And when they do, we say, "Come on into the restaurant, save twenty six percent." Okay, Bill. Thanks for the call. Yeah, this is the bottom line for a lot of restaurants. If they feel forced, they've got to use the app. They got to jack up the prices. This is just the bottom line. Let's go to Ben and Burnaby. He's a DoorDash driver. Hi, Ben. Well, hi, Mike. Hi. What well, do you think? I'm listening. Thank you. All, all I'm going to say is that everybody's been complaining that DoorDash charges too much money. But I mean, if you look at the uh, IPO recently, they lost $600 million last year. They're on pace hmm. to lose $150 million this year. Wow. So how can you say they're charging too much money? I mean, they're, they're doing everybody a service. They're doing the drivers a service by paying us. Are you worried? Let me ask you this. Are you worried that if they cut the fees, that's going to impact your income as, on the tips? I mean, they'll, they'll make it up somewhere else. I mean, if they cut the fees from the restaurant and the restaurant's going to lower the prices on the menu, like the other, like the other caller was saying, he's checked up his fees by 26% on his menu prices to compensate for DoorDash. Right? I know a lot of restaurants do that. Yeah. So if the government cuts the uh, fees to 15%, would the restaurants go around and cut their menu prices down by 15%? Mm. Okay, interesting. Okay, Ben, thanks for calling in. 604 604- <laughs> 
604-280-9898 is the number to call. Phone me and tell me if you use these apps. Do you think they're too expensive? 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Rod in New West. Hi, Rod. Hi, Mike. Uh, I've used Uber Eats twice. And that was when I was on vacation in Quebec, and I knew where nothing was. But other than that, if they don't deliver, if the restaurant doesn't deliver, I just go pick it up. I save money where I don't have to tip anybody because I've done the service myself. I've gone to pick it up, and the food gets to me hot. I'm controlling it. It, I think it's silly to go skip the dishes or Uber Eats. Okay, Rod, thanks for the call. A lot of people have told me something similar, that maybe they'll have the app on their phone, but they'll just use it to check the menu and then just call the restaurant directly and go pick the food up, sort of cut out the middleman. So there may be a lot of that going on as well. Let's go to Stephen on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, good morning. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Sure. My issue, uh, I guess, echoing what your previous caller mentioned, is that in this equation, nobody is making any money. Uh, the, the apps themselves are losing boatloads of money. The restaurants are losing boatloads of money. Uh, the drivers are making, uh, you know, next to nothing. My buddy did it when he got laid off, uh, you know, when COVID first started. Uh, he was making, uh, you know, minimum wage. So I, I think that uh, also further echoing what was said, we need to cut out the middleman by supporting our local establishments. I live in the Canby Corridor, and there's a number of places that are on the verge of going out of business, and I think that that's just very, very, very sad. Okay, when your buddy, you're saying your buddy was a, a driver, so he was not making much money. I mean, how were the tips for him? Well, that that's the thing. Like, you, when you do the delivery, as he was telling me, that you don't know the amount of tip that you're going to get until after you complete the delivery. And I've used the app, and, I, and I've tipped, you know, what I thought was reasonable. But he does tell me that uh, in a lot of cases, people do not tip for the service, and they certainly yeah. depend on that extra money. Thanks, thanks a lot for the call, Stephen. I appreciate it. Well, the bills can be so big. In my experience using the apps, uh, because the service fees are, are pretty pretty large, you can ring up a pretty hefty bill uh, using these apps at the best of times. And then when it comes time to add the tip, a lot of people might say, man, oh, man, this is killing me here. So maybe you go lower on the tip to kind of lessen the damage uh, that you're taking to your own wallet and that's tough for the drivers so it is a difficult situation now what was promised during the election remember what the ndp said they would do it's a 30 percent markup here for these apps on average john horgan promised he would chop that down to 15 percent, so he would cut it in half let's go let's see the action you promised this months ago. Let's go. Let's see you reduce these fees on these delivery apps. They promised it during the election. Keep your promise. Reduce those fees. All right, let's talk about COVID in the classroom now. The spread of the virus in the public school system, especially in the Fraser Health region, and very notably in Surrey, where Surrey schools have been impacted every day by COVID-19. The vice president of the Surrey Teachers Union has written a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry. It says, we are the 6,000 teachers in BC's largest school district. We teach in the Fraser Health region. Surrey schools are impacted daily by COVID-19. We are not safe. We are asking that the Ministry of Health listen to us about the reality of our experiences 
it is dangerous and unfair to be expected to continue in this way without appropriate measures to ensure our safety. That letter was written by Julia McRae. She is the first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association, and she joins me now. Julia, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, I appreciate your time. Your letter to the public health officer, getting a lot of attention since it was released. Can you tell me your, your primary concerns here? Like, what are, what are the major concerns that Surrey teachers have right now uh, with the situation with COVID in schools? Well, the situation in Surrey schools is overcrowded, and that has nothing to do with COVID. That's from previous neglect of, of investment in capital infrastructure. But now that we have this pandemic, it's certainly um, at the top of our mind. Now, the, the, when you have 360 portables beside the schools, you have to realize that when you add a portable or any portables to a school, you don't build more gymnasiums, washrooms, hallways, cafeterias. You just have more classrooms. So that means this, all those common areas are very crowded. The teachers are teaching full classes of kids. Some kids in Surrey are taking blended programs, so they're doing some of their learning online or remotely, but the, kids, the teachers who are in the classrooms are teaching full classes. So that's 26, yeah. 27, 28, 30, 31 kids every day. So there's an exposure to human beings in relatively small rooms every day for the teachers who are working in the schools. So okay. um, as you can see, we, we want to be able to do physical distancing. We want to be able to obey the public health officer's rules about physical distancing and wearing masks, but those two things are not possible in schools. Okay, the public health officer has emphasized that she believes that the school system is safe, but in your experience, like, have, are you aware of any teachers who have actually caught COVID at work, at school? I know of two that, that are pretty sure that's where they caught it. I don't, of course, health information is private, so I do not know all the health information of every Surrey teacher, for sure. But I know of two that have told us that that's what they think. Okay, when we talk to the public health officer, Bonnie Henry, she talks about the, the layers of protection, the personal protective equipment for teachers, the rules that have been brought into place for cohorts and keeping kids apart, we, all the rules that we've heard about for anyone who's got kids in the school system know about, including myself, I've got kids in the public school system. Mm-hmm. What about, um, can you can you talk a little bit about the day-to-day reality for teachers, especially when they're dealing with younger kids? It's not always possible to physically distance from kids when they need help, right? No, you, well, first of all, they come in, they need their coats taken off, they need their noses yeah. wiped, they need, you know, they're, they're very wiggly. You know, they need to interact with each other physically. That's, that's normal for small kids. And, of course, if they, have a, if they wipe out or have a, a sadness, they need to be comforted. You know, it's, it's normal for a teacher to be close to their students. Right. And even for, for senior secondary, if you, if you want to speak to a child, a, a, a youth, about a discipline issue, of course you want to go right up to them and speak to them quietly because it's respectful. Okay. What you do know, you, you don't think- want to yell at them. Right. It's part of our practice to do a good job in all of these circumstances, and that sometimes involves political, uh, physical proximity. Sure. Are a lot of teachers um, getting sick? Are a lot of them not off sick? Or I mean, do you have any? Are you seeing any sort of absenteeism from teachers at schools? Um, actually, I think absenteeism is a little bit down. 
for compared to usual at this time of year, and that may be because of all the health measures um, where people are taking lots of precautions in the community and the flu level is lower than it is normally this time of year. Right. But we're, we're seeing a lot of absences, especially of teachers on call, because um, many of the teachers on call in Surrey are retired teachers. They've been holding the fort. You know, we have a teacher shortage, so they've been holding the fort and providing a lot of good service to us. But now many of those people are very nervous about going into schools or going into many different schools. And so now there's many of what we call failures to fill. So if, if a teacher is away uh, sick or at a medical appointment or whatever their reason is, then they're not being replaced, and then that means other teachers have to cover for them and cross into their cohorts, and it's, you know, it, it's a bit of a, a snowball effect. Right. Speaking of Julia McRae, she's the vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. So what, do you, what would you like to see done? What kind of rules or regulations would you like to see changed in the school system to make things better? Well, it'd be, to our mind, it would be really helpful if the provincial health officer gave us a mask mandate. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. it would be difficult, because most kids are wearing masks. Most kids have masks and are happy to wear them. They understand that it protects themselves and it protects their families and it protects their teachers and, other, and their, their friends. So having a mask mandate would help us enforce it and it would make it 100%, pretty much 100% use in schools, which would, be, which would reduce the risk of the students and the workers in the schools. Okay, aren't people already masking up a lot in schools? Like in, in your experience, are, are kids wearing masks when they come to school, when they're, when they're switching classes or in the hallway, or teachers wearing masks? Yeah, I think mostly. That's why I think a mask mandate would help us close the gap if there's a few that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then we would like to think about how can the uh, density of the classes being taught be reduced? You know, if we had 50% density, you could have physical distancing. You could have uh, less exposures in the classroom. So that's what, we w- that's what we're asking for here. Okay, how could you achieve that, the smaller classes that people are asking for? And some people might be wondering, well, wouldn't you have to hire a lot more teachers if you're going to have smaller classes? Or, or, or could you do a system where maybe kids are coming in on staggered, maybe alternative dates, and then doing some distance learning at home on the days when they don't come in? Or how would it work? Yeah, the, the second idea. I think we'd have yeah. to just stagger the, the contact hours um, for kids to be attending class. Um, and yes, it would probably impact their education, but we're in this pandemic, and we don't want to see deaths and uh, long COVID happening because we didn't take that step. Some kids really need school. Some kids, especially special needs kids, we want to provide good service to them, and we want to provide it safely. So it might mean that um, some other kids might not have to have as many hours in school. But think about how disruptive it is to have a school suddenly close, which has already happened twice in Surrey. The Fraser Health gave an order for Cambridge and for Newton Elementaries to close, and they had to leave that day and not come back for 14 days. Very, very disruptive to the families and even just to the teachers to get their teaching materials to be able to carry on in a remote way. So we want to mitigate that, have that not happen again, and have um, transmission that is apparently happening in schools be reduced to nothing. We want that curve bent right down again. Okay, I'm sure this is a very urgent issue in the minds of a lot of teachers, especially in the city of Surrey, where there's a a lot of COVID circulating in the community. Let me ask you about the mask mandate, because I find it interesting that Dr. Bonnie Henry had resisted a mandatory mask order for British Columbia for so long. A lot of people were asking for it, finally came in with the mandatory mask order for indoor public spaces in the province, seemed to have rolled out pretty well. We seem to have a widely accepted 
uh, people complying with the mask order, with this very prominent exception of it doesn't apply in in schools. Does that does that make any does that make any sense to you that we've got a mandatory mask order except in schools? No, it doesn't make any sense. So that's why we're asking no. again for her to consider it. And in Surrey, we have the situation of um, a pretty high level of COVID happening. Of course, what's tested and what's discovered is less than what's actually there, presumably. And mm. and then we have a kind of a vulnerable population, too. Like many, many frontline workers of all kinds of different industries live in Surrey. Many healthcare workers, truckers, people who work in retail, factories, they have to go to work. They can't work remotely. And so there's that factor, plus there's intergenerational homes, which is, like, wonderful for a great community, but terrible for transmission between generations. So there's just so many vulnerabilities along with our overcrowded schools. We just need to see um, a better safety response for the schools. Have you, last question for you, Julia, have you received a response to your letter to Dr. Henry? I haven't yet, but it's only been one day. (laughs) I'm, I'm confident she must have read it. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. That is Julia McRae. She is the vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. She has written that letter to provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. She wants a mandatory mask order for schools in Surrey to be brought in. Also, smaller classes. She thinks that would be effective in spreading kids out to stop the transmission of the virus. Is there a family as famous as the Gretzkys in Canada? Maybe not, but that did not stop a pair of thieves from allegedly stealing a bunch of Wayne Gretzky hockey memorabilia from the Gretzky family home in Brantford, Ontario. Our show contributor John Jang has more details now regarding the Gretzkys. Hey, good morning, Mike. As you know, whenever Wayne Gretzky's name is mentioned in the news, usually, you know, it has to do with his records, and certainly there's still so many of his records left standing, or maybe it has something to do with his business ventures outside of hockey altogether. But you don't often hear the words Gretzky and crime together in the same sentence. That is until yesterday. News broke that the other famous Gretzky, that would be Wayne's father, Walter, was actually the victim of an apparent burglary. Now, for more on this, we are joined by our friend Rob Williams. He's the editor for Offside Sports at the Daily Hive. And Rob, what exactly happened to Canada's most famous dad? Yeah, I mean, he he was robbed in his home in Brantford, Ontario. And it uh, looks like the, it looks like it happened this summer, but uh, police have, uh, I guess, recently recovered $500,000 $500,000 worth of memorabilia. Uh, and if, I'm sure most Canadians are familiar with with uh, Walter Gretzky. I mean, I mean that just shows how big Wayne Gretzky is, that his father is also a celebrity in Canada. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, as you can imagine, his home would be almost like a like a Gretzky hockey shrine. So there'd be a lot of a uh, lot of valuables in the home. Do we know exactly what was taken from the Gretzky household? I would imagine it's almost like a museum, really, where there's so many Wayne Gretzky memorabilia pieces that uh, maybe these people, the the alleged thieves, were looking for very specific items. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, there were sticks and there were uh, jerseys and there were gloves and all sorts of equipment. And he had a, an award, a Player of the Year award uh, in there as well. So, yeah, lots of... Um, Lots of uh, fancy stuff. 
I just can't help but shake my head when I'm hearing all this. Because, look, it's one thing to commit a crime, and then another to commit a crime against the family of a national treasure. Look, all crimes are bad. We know that. But I'll I'll say this. Gutless is a term that is well used in sports media, and it's pretty much the only way I can describe my feelings on this story. It's absolutely gutless to steal from the Gretzkys. It's like stealing from all of Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you're not only, it's it's not only stealing from, you know, a uh, family member of Wayne Gretzky, who's, you know, universally beloved, uh, particularly in Canada, um, but then you're, you're stealing from an old man at his home in a in small town Canada, right? Like that sort of ticks all the boxes of outrage. Um, I mean, but I mean, it's great that they were able to re- recover uh so so much of the memorabilia and um and it didn't i i don't know i mean i would assume that uh that they would have that walter would have even you know greater uh memorabilia uh in his house than than the stuff that that was recovered anyways um hopefully those are fine <laughs> like some uh locked <laughs> in some locked safes or in some locked uh, do they have locked frames i'm not sure but um yeah, I mean, that's that about does it all, I think. The Gretzkys, obviously, they're going to have to upgrade their security system. We don't want this happening ever again. But I wonder, because it seems like to me, whoever stole the items uh, ended up selling it to other people, maybe for a quick turnaround, a quick profit somewhere. Who knows exactly what happened? But the people who might have bought the stolen goods, did they even know that it was stolen? Maybe not. So all of a sudden, it's not just the Gretzkys who are the victims here. There could be more people that are now out of thousands of dollars because they thought they were buying legitimate Gretzky merchandise. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think the the thing that makes it all the more worse about this is is Walter Gretzky. Like the the, the so the stories of the Gretzkys are, are so well known, uh, and you always would hear like. I mean, I'm going back like multiple, multiple years of fans and uh, I guess like people passing through Brantford going up to the to the Gretzky house and Walter like opening the door, inviting kids in, like having all the time in the world for them. Like you hear countless stories like that of, of Walter Gretzky. So to, uh, you know, I, I, I met Walter Gretzky once and I remember in a hotel in Halifax like held the door open for us as you know as a kid sort of thing so um you know you hear all of these stories so for somebody to, to rob to rob him of, of all people um you know it, it makes it so much worse man i'm jealous i do not have a cool gretzky story to share i don't really have any gretzky sto- story to share so uh wow very jealous of you rob williams he is our friend he's also the editor of offside sports at daily hive uh, Rob, I really appreciate you giving us some time and breaking down what exactly happened to Wayne and Walter Gretzky. Yeah, anytime. Okay, good job on that, John. And yeah, it is kind of sad to think that a guy as beloved as Walter Gretzky, Wayne's dad in Canada, could be uh, robbed like this with stuff taken right out of his home. I'm, I'm just taking a look at some of the reports on this from uh, Sports Illustrated right now. And it sounds like it may have been people who really maybe have just taken straight up advantage of Walter Gretzky, who's 82 years old and had a massive stroke a few years ago, diagnosed with Parkinson's. And it may have been someone that, like uh, like Rob was just saying there, may have just been invited him into his house and they were just taking stuff right, right under his nose. 
Yeah, Pretty I mean sad. that's really that, that that makes it all worse uh, because uh, when we're looking about when we're thinking about the Gretzky's, obviously you know Wayne is still in good health, but you're right, uh, Walter is is at a point now where his age you have to consider that, and as Rob pointed out, you're not just stealing from a member of a family member of Wayne Gretzky, you're stealing from an old man who's not a hundred percent right now. So it's just a shame on them, shame on yeah. them. So at least the cops have solved this one. Okay, can I quickly tell you my Wayne Gretzky story? Oh, I would love to hear this. Okay, so my first job in journalism um, as a young newspaper reporter was at the Brantford Expositor, which is a daily newspaper in Brantford, Ontario, Wayne Gretzky's hometown. So one of my first assignments there was I was assigned to cover uh, Wayne Gretzky Celebrity Tennis Tournament. So Wayne would have bring a lot of his famous friends into Brantford every year, have this tennis tournament, raise money for charity. So I was, uh, I was assigned to cover this. I was just thrilled. You know, I'm just this young guy straight out of journalism school. So the guy I was assigned to cover it with was a man named Ted Bear, who was the local uh, sports columnist in the Brantford Expositor newspaper. His column used to be called The Bear Facts. <laughs> and he covered Wayne Gretzky literally since Gretzky was uh, playing peewee hockey because Gretzky was a phenom when he was a little kid. Like he was scoring like 300 goals and stuff in peewee. So this guy had been covering this kid probably longer than any other reporter. So he told me all kinds of Wayne Gretzky stories. We traveled to Toronto for this big news conference to announce this tennis tournament where I was going to interview Gretzky. And here's where I, here's where I was super impressed with Gretzky. He goes up to Ted Bear. And he says to him, Mr. Bear, how are you, Mr. Bear? And uh, you, you just see Ted, the respect that Gretzky showed him. And all these other Toronto big shot uh, sports reporters there were looking at this guy and going, who is this old man? And why is Wayne Gretzky being so nice to him? Well, this guy had been covering Wayne Gretzky since he was a kid. So anyway, Ted introduced me to Gretzky. I did my little interview with Gretzky. Gretzky was was great, total class. And then he said to Ted... Mr. Bear, do you need any other any other photos, Mr. Bear? Do you need a separate interview? And Ted was going, no, that's, o- that's okay, Wayne, thanks. And he just made Ted feel like a million bucks, you know? Uh, so I was just super impressed wow. with Wayne. And I interviewed him another time. He came to Brantford, Ontario to shoot a hockey video at, the, at the, one of the rinks where he used to play when he was a kid. And Gretzky was straight up class all the way. And ever since then... You cannot say a bad word about Wayne Gretzky to me, not that anybody would, but he is a 100% straight-up class guy, and we should all be proud of him. So anyway, that's my little brush with greatness story there. I love that story, and I'll be quick. I know we're up against the clock, but I just want to point out how rare that is in sports media. Having worked in the industry for just over two years previously, uh, there's a lot of hockey players, a lot of just athletes who are so... PR trained up now that they don't really share a lot of information about themselves if they don't really have to. And even guys like Connor McDavid, very hard to make a personable approach to guys like him because throughout their entire lives now, they've gone with social media. So addressing people by the title of Mr. Insert last name here or even wanting to offer like, hey, can I do extra photos for you? It never really seems to happen anymore. So I love hearing that. Yeah, Gretzky was great. I met his dad too, Walter, and Walter is straight up great guy too. And and that was right, that story that Rob told that, you know, there's lots of stories about people who go up and knock on the front door of the Wayne Gretzky family home, just just fans, random fans. Mm-hmm. And Walter Walter Gretzky would say, come on in and tell them stories and show them around. So, you I know, love that. Great guy and glad they caught these guys, whoever allegedly ripped off all this stuff out of the home. Glad the cops got it all back, too.
Yeah, happy ending, thankfully. Thank you, John. You got it. Thank you, Mike. That's, that's John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show.